The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Ministry Weekend with Zach Eswine. Good morning. If we were to uh, sit together in our sadness, and if we were to spend time together, and if you were to come and sit with me in my depression, uh, you would use uh, way fewer words than I'm about to use to talk about depression. And if I were to come to sit with you, I would say very little and uh, by way of words and uh, say a lot I trust by presence and being with. Uh, and you know that if you're in the hospital and you have a physical ailment and you are exhausted and wore out and seeking to recover from that physical ailment, you know the difference between two kinds of friends. The one kind of friend who comes and gives you a long theological treatise on the nature of God and the fallenness of the world and how you can have hope and things like this. And as much as you want to be able to hang in with the theological treatise, your body won't let you. It's exhausted and your mind is wore out. You actually cannot handle and take in that much in that short amount of time in that moment. Whereas another friend comes in, they say just a few things, and mostly they're just with you. It's kind of like a, a little bit of ice to chew on, a little cracker to eat, because you can't yet handle a full meal. But the bit of cracker and the bit of ice are sustaining nonetheless. And so in those moments, in actual sitting together, uh, you, will, you won't speak as much as I'm about to today. And uh, so if you're with us and you're wondering, uh, you're feeling, you're in the midst of depression and sorrow, it's okay. It's okay to tune me out at some point. Take a break with your heart and mind. You can get up and walk and walk around and be, and then come back in. Uh, it's being video recorded, and anything worthwhile being heard, you can come back to it. Does that make sense? So in some ways, we're embodying and practicing something you wouldn't actually do. But we're doing that in order to take a look together in our short time and to, to look to Jesus and to find wisdom so that we can begin to think about our own hearts, our own bodies, and those we serve. Let's pray together. Lord, you are lovely. Thank you, O man of sorrows. Thank you for being acquainted with grief. Thank you for knowing what it is to be overlooked and forgotten. Thank you for knowing what it is for people to say foolish things to you. Thank you for bearing with, walking through, overcoming, rising from the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father, interceding for us even now, and coming again. You are beautiful. You are everything to us. We praise you. Amen. Here, the preacher, the Reformed Baptist preacher, 
the Reformed Baptist megachurch pastor, Charles Spurgeon, hear some of what he had to say. Quite involuntarily, unhappiness of mind, depression of spirit, and sorrow of heart will come upon you. You may be without any real reason for grief, and yet you may become among the most unhappy of men because for the time your body has conquered your soul. I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go. Well, mind you, he's saying these things on Sunday mornings in his sermons. We very speedily care for bodily diseases. They are too painful to let us slumber in silence and they soon urge us to seek a physician or a surgeon for our healing. Oh, if we were as much alive to the more serious wounds of our inner man. Personally, I know that there is nothing on earth that the human frame can suffer to be compared with despondency and prostration of mind. Someone yelled fire in his megachurch. And there was a stampede of people thinking there was a fire. It was a prank. And at the end of that, while he was preaching, that took place while he was preaching. At the end of that, seven people were dead. 28 people were seriously injured. The local critics of Charles Spurgeon uh, publicly accused him of callousness because it took him a while to realize what was happening, so he continued to preach. Such a large place, no microphone. Something happening over there, he continues for a bit and then realizes something's going on. So he was mercilessly criticized publicly. He personally saw the dead as they got him out of the building. His wife says, we didn't know, Susanna, says, we didn't know if he would recover. He seemed to be tottering on the edge of sanity. And when Charles, I call him that, Charles Spurgeon, when Charles read the Bible, he says all he could do is groan and weep. They didn't know if he would ever preach again. He thought he was going crazy. The combination, that, uh, that kind of thing is not supposed to happen there. It's like going on a vacation, a family vacation that you've planned. And then one of your family members dies on the vacation or slips and falls and a terrible accident takes place. That's not supposed to happen there. It's like when someone takes a gun into an elementary school. That is not supposed to happen there. So to be in church in the presence of God, the Spirit of God by and with His Word, proclaiming Christ, it is not supposed to be a place where people die and pranksters are allowed to prank. And yet, 
That's what it was. It profoundly shook him. Sometime later, he stood up to preach from Philippians 2, his very first sermon back from that time. And this is what he says. I almost regret this morning that I have ventured to occupy this pulpit because I feel utterly unable to preach to you for your profit. I had thought that the quiet and repose of the last fortnight had removed the effects of that terrible catastrophe, but on coming back to the same spot again, and more especially standing here to address you, I feel somewhat of those same painful emotions which well nigh prostrated me before. You will therefore excuse me this morning. I have been utterly unable to study. O oh, Spirit of God, magnify thy strength in thy servant's weakness and enable him to honor his Lord even when his soul is cast down within him. Could you imagine coming into a Reformed Baptist congregation, the preacher speaking so humanly with you? Twenty-five years later, he's been asked to speak at a large venue. The crowds uh, are overwhelming the seats. They're pressing forward to the stage, and he experiences what we would call a flashback. He has a traumatic trigger, and he says he was unmanned, that his entire nervous system, that's the language they would have used in 19th century to describe our bodily reality. My entire nervous system was agitated. It is said of those who watched him that he leaned his head into his hands. He could barely stand. And it took him a while to recover, not knowing if he could even preach. What happened? Nothing was going on. People were just coming in to hear him preach. But his whole body and soul reacted with memory of trauma. And the, uh, a resonance, uh, an analogy of those feelings from that first experience suddenly engulf him as if it's happening again. Do you know someone who's experienced that? Have you yourself experienced that? The dark providences of God, the painful ones, the traumatic ones that are as real as the beautiful ones. And just as beauty is in your memory and gratitude is in your memory, so, so is trauma, so is pain. No wonder a soldier, combat veteran, walking along and a car backfires on the street and the soldier hits the ground. He's walking in the middle of a, of a peaceful place as a civilian now. But the sound in the moment triggers response to the ground. Post-traumatic stress. The memory of providence. 
that stays with us. Spurgeon says this, especially judge not the sons and daughters of sorrow. Allow no ungenerous suspicions of the afflicted, the poor, and the despondent. Do not hastily say they ought to be more brave and exhibit a greater faith. Ask not, why are they so nervous and so absurdly fearful? No, I beseech you, remember that you understand not your fellow man. This is the pastor, Charles Spurgeon. What is depression? What? To answer that question, we have to begin with what is sadness? What is sadness? What is sorrow? Let's remind ourselves of the sanity of sadness. Let's remind ourselves that it is wise to be sad about sad things. Let's remind ourselves that biblically speaking, it is foolish to resist sadness about sad things. There is a time to weep there is a time to mourn, Ecclesiastes 3, 4. In fact, Ecclesiastes 7 tells us the wisdom of meditating on grief. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of, of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. What is he saying? It's good to be depressed. Don't go party. No. What he's, what he's saying is that the person who refuses grief and constantly resists what is unpleasant in favor of what is shallowly mirthful, that person is a fool. Whereas the person who embraces the grief of a fallen world under the sun and lays it to heart is wise. Jesus wept publicly. Isn't that something? Could you imagine if you were Peter, James, or John, or if you were Mary or Martha, and you're following Jesus? I wonder, had you ever seen a grown Israeli man weep? I wonder, had you ever seen a rabbi weep? You will have read about it in the stories of King David. You will have heard the stories told. But here the son of David sees Lazarus in the tomb, sees those he loves grieving, grieving, weeping, appealing to him, sees the wretchedness of death, and he weeps. Or if you were following him, as he's just looking out over the city of Jerusalem, just meditating on the fact of the, what man does to man, and their rebellion against God, and their harm to one another, and he just begins to cry over the city, 
You're just standing there with Jesus. And suddenly, you see his shoulders move. Ah! And you hear it come from his heart. Jesus crying over the city. It is this same Jesus that pronounces the blessing of God upon those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. God himself gives us language for our sorrows. We have a whole corpus of psalms that we call psalms of lament. We hear the sage in Ecclesiastes say, I hated life because of what is done under the sun. And this is God-given language. This is no outside of the covenant other than Christian person, secularized, who doesn't know what he's speaking of. This is Solomon, the wisdom king, and all of his failures, and all of his God-given glory, giving voice. This is inspired speech, authoritative speech, sufficient speech, inerrant speech. So to begin thinking of the question about depression, we begin with sorrow itself. If you struggle with the idea that being sad about sad things is wise and godly, then you will have a very difficult time with depression. In order to be able to get close enough to imagining what it's like to be depressed or to walk with someone who's depressed, we first need a rich, vibrant, thoroughgoing, biblical theology of sadness itself. For this reason, those who believe that sadness regarding sad things is a sin, you have no biblical warrant You have no biblical ground to stand on. For it is Jesus himself in Hebrews 5, 7, who in the days of his flesh prayed with loud cries and tears. Hebrews 5, 7. To the one who could save him from death. And he was heard. This is why the Proverbs, the wisdom literature tells us this. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Proverbs 25, 20. To sing songs of mirth to a heavy heart is cruel. Hey, be happy. Hey, cheer up. Hey, God is good. To sing songs is like a person being in the cold and you say, here, let me help you. And you take away their coat. It is like that old uh, uh, parable from desert fathers and mothers that talked about uh, 
uh, those friends who went to help someone who was slipping down in the mud and they only pushed him in further by their attempts to help. Vinegar and soda. This is why in contrast, the scripture commands us to weep with those who weep. What is it to weep with someone who's weeping? It is to be with them, feeling their ache and shedding like tears. To weep with rather than to sing songs of mirth to. The one stands at a distance and speaks at. The other comes inside the experience itself and is with. Weep with those who weep because weeping is wise and good and not to be rebuked. Imagine if it said, as some of us seem to believe, Rebuke those who weep. Shout at those who weep. Be impatient with those who weep. Cheer up those who weep. Mm -mm. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12, weep with those who weep. But that's not how I want to spend a day. I mean, I got plans. I want my day to, I want to go to the beach. I want to do some things. I don't want to weep with someone who's weeping. May I tell you this? I don't know what you've experienced from God talkers like me. But in your weeping and sorrow, what God intends you to experience is a fellow friend who weeps with you. This is the heart of God. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. So, sadness. Sadness carried out in proportion to the sad thing. How long should you be sad? Well, in proportion to the sad thing. If you were called in as a caregiver after King Herod's soldiers had just come through, and killed every two-year-old in your neighborhood. And you're the caregiver called in. You're the pastor called in. How long will you let Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more? How long will you give your congregation to weep over that infanticide in which no lobby group and no news organization and no amount of anything can cry out and stop it? And any court you appealed to would only uphold the injustice and defend the king. You're the caregiver in Christ's name. How long do you let those people grieve? It is wise to be sad about a sad thing. It is not what we were made for. Sadness in proportion to the thing we're sad about. 
there are symptoms of sadness. As some therapists call this, uh, biblical therapists call this an appropriate depression or a, an, uh, a responsible depression or a reactive depression or little d depression or the right kind of depression, sadness in proportion to the sad thing. You experience things that mimic the larger, darker thing, loss of appetite, problems with sleeping, little or too much, losing weight, losing hair, heaving, heaving tears that come in waves, inability to concentrate, loss of energy that makes the smallest tasks feel too large, ugly, condemning, dark thoughts, nightmares, memories, loss of attention to those who depend upon us, loss of purpose and hope. See, all of those things are a part of normal sadness about sad things. So in our impatience to resist weeping with those who weep, we want to throw Bible verses at that sometimes, don't we? We want to try all manner of healing like impatience. Here's something that will heal you. I'll use a loud voice. Stop! Somehow we think that has medicinal properties. I'll say it forcefully. You should cheer up. There's some medicinal property we think in the tone. Depression is ordinary sadness that gets stuck. Depression is ordinary sorrow, appropriate little d depression. A big d depression is little d depression that's grown ill. It's become infected. It moves from a rational, sane response. It is... I'm sad about a sad thing. It moves from there to becoming sad about things that aren't sad. It moves us to flashback like Spurgeon had, to experience and imagine a trauma when no trauma is happening around you. What are the causes of ordinary sadness and the sickness of depression. First, we're born that way, Charles Spurgeon says. Some of us have a melancholy temperament. All of us worry, but those with a melancholy temperament Imagine gloom and worry more. Here's what Spurgeon says. I would not blame all those who are much given to fear, for in some it is rather their disease than their sin, and more their misfortune than their fault. Sometimes depression doesn't stem from painful circumstances. According to Charles Spurgeon, quote, some persons are constitutionally sad. Sometimes we are, quote, marked by melancholy from the moment of our birth. 
some of us uh, struggle with this idea. There's more to say than we can in our time together, but may I just invite you to consider these things over the next several months as you're meditating on this. Number one, uh, a robust theology, a Christian theology that we are body and soul should make it no surprise that a person can be born under the sun with a melancholy temperament and physiology. Uh, Christian teaching is not Platonic teaching. Christian teaching isn't, is distinct from Hinduism. Christian teaching is distinct from Gnosticism. All of these things which denigrate the body as somehow evil or less good, and what's truly good is the soul. Those things are not Christianity. Christian teaching is that we are created body and soul, physicality and soulishness, and that when we are redeemed, it is our bodies and our souls that will be redeemed, and we will live forever in eternity in the new kingdom with new body and soul. So redemption, healing, mending isn't just for our soul but includes our bodies. I suggest that some steps in that direction might be helpful studying that. I'd also like to suggest this. It is a plain fact of providence. Just look around. It is a plain fact of providence that people are born with physical ailments from birth. They have disease in their mind, in their body. Cerebral palsy. Parkinson's disease. That's been there all along. And then reveals itself. Why would we allow and admit every other area of physical brokenness from birth except this one. Well, you don't have to agree, but I ask you to consider. The Reformed Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon says depression is sometimes constitutional from birth. It is not a sin. It is a misfortune, not a fault. Spurgeon himself was affected in these ways, and we'll talk more about that in our next session. What then is the relation of sin to sorrow and sorrow grown ill? Number one, we can be sad about sinful things rather than sad about sad things. Uh, I can be sad, uh, a person can be sad because they were involved in an affair and now they have to break it off and they're now depressed. The experience of the sorrows are real, but the source is sinful. They're lamenting the loss of the thing that would destroy them. They're lamenting the loss of the thing that would destroy their family. 
in their covenant bond. They're sad, wishing they could have the sin back. That kind of sadness is not what we're talking about. We're talking about being sad about truly sad things. The sadness that led, contributed, contributed, gave excuse for a person to justify choosing sin. There's real sadness there. A brokenness in marriage that needs mending, help. But the lament of the loss of sin is not to be coddled. We can also respond sinfully out of our sadness. Uh, you and I know this in the most basic way. You lash out at someone you love, and then you, and then you say, ah, I was just tired. Ah, it's just been a hard day. Some of us uh, need to let you know that your hard days have become a way of life, like you're always lashing out. We can sinfully respond to genuine depression and genuine sadness. But the sadness and the depression regarding sad things are no sins. They are a part of a fallen world in which our Savior leads us into them. There's a second cause, and that cause is circumstantial. We've already hinted at it. A thing happens to you in your life or you witness a thing that happened to someone else and that marks you the rest of your days. It's what stays with you for 25 years and suddenly shows up in an event like it did with Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon describes several forms of a broken heart. That, that's his language. There are several forms of a broken heart, he says. First of all, desertion. Neglect or betrayal by a spouse, family member, or friend. Second of all, bereavement. The ailment or death of one we love. Third, penury, which means job loss, financial strain, poverty of basic needs. Fourth, disappointment and defeat. Dreams that were unreached. Goals that you had that were blocked. Tries that failed. Foes that won. Finally, guilt. Regrets and pains we've caused others. Sins we've had against God. These things, he says, among others, are the reasons for a broken heart. And they are sane and legitimate responses with the caveats we've already made. So the problem here is that we can't fix that stuff. At least we can't mend it quickly. And let's pause for a moment and say that many of us, at least in our various American cultures, are, are prone to haste. We, uh, patience is not generally an American virtue among our many many strengths. We are a people of immediate gratification in our generation. We don't like to wait on anything. 
even a half-calf with almond milk if it takes too long. And so what happens is we forget that everywhere in the Bible, haste is associated with folly, not wisdom. And that impatience is not a fruit of the Spirit. Patience is. And forgetting that, being poorly trained, impoverishedly discipled in these, this act of waiting, this spiritual skill of taking courage and waiting for the Lord, that that spiritual skill lacking in us, we bring uh, a hasty assumption to someone's bereavement or brokenheartedness. We not only seek a fix, we seek it fast. It's been three days by now. You should be better. I mean, my goodness, we've read the Bible, we've quoted verses, we've prayed. I mean, what else is there? circumstantial, biological, and finally a spiritual cause. Spurgeon would say there's spiritual depression. He says this is the worst of all. It is a felt awareness of the existence of God and believing that that God is against you, not for you. And there is no remedy. The belief that God exists, the belief that you yourself are uh, isolated from that God, and there is nothing that can be done to mend the relationship. So that a person who is spiritually depressed feels only the accusing presence of a holy God and feels nothing of the mercy and grace and kindness of that holy God. There is no savior for them. They believe this. He can save someone else. He is for that person. He can mend that person but I'm left out. He is against me. Charles talks about being in this state for several years. These, each of these three kinds of depression are separate. They can happen separately from one another, but in their most diabolical, and I use the word on purpose, diabolical form, because Spurgeon believed in a literal devil, that we are like a zebra who's lame walking in front of a lion. And the whisper of the accuser into the biologically melancholy and the circumstantially traumatized that you should be better by now. You call yourself a Christian? Let me bring you some other Christians to tell you what I'm trying to tell you. And the convergence of the three can devastate a human being. These kinds of descriptions in the Bible are sometimes misinterpreted. May I mention just Philippians 4 again? We're adults here. You can, you can disagree with me. 
look it up, sort it out. Philippians chapter 4, I was, uh, where it says, do not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests be made known to God. Uh, many, many times uh, I hear students that I serve in teaching preach this passage with red-faced rebuke in, in homiletics labs and let me know that anxiety is a sin. And this is the passage they quote. So may I just ask you to consider a couple things. Number one, if you know about the book of Philippians, what is the theme of that book? Joy. This isn't Galatians, where Paul says, even if we teach you something that's contrary to the gospel, we can, we can go to hell. Let him be accursed. Forthright language like that. This is Philippians, where he says, I love you from my bowels. That's the way they used to say it. I love you. The whole tone. You see, is a pastor's joy with his people. He sees legitimate anxiety and he's teaching them what to do with it. That's very different than if he had said, uh, anxiety is a sin. If you have it, you're in the danger of judgment. That's just not what he's saying. He's saying, in your anxieties, here's what you do. You take them to the Lord. The Apostle Peter teaches the exact same thing. Cast your cares upon the Lord. He doesn't say, stop having cares. He says, when you have cares, and you will, cast them because he cares for you. The same apostle tells us of his own anxieties. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. We're not condemned because we're anxious about anxious things. Rather, we learn how to be anxious about anxious things Christianly. What to do with such things. Sort it out. See what you think. Let's think about, uh, in our final few minutes here, here's a summary of what Charles Spurgeon would say in light of these things. Number one, we must take into account the body's contribution to depression, either biologically from birth or the fact that when we're sick, when we are physically ill in its various degrees from minor to major bodily illnesses, he will say, often, often, depression results. Sadness results because of everything associated with the bodily impairment that we're undergoing, even if it's a, a flu, a cold, and it lingers, and there's something you had intended to do, and now you're hampered by it. Often, we can grow sad. Some of us angry, but others of us, melancholy temperament will grow sad. On this point, Charles just reminds us of basic Christian theology. Quote, man is a double being. He is composed of body and soul, and each of the portions of man may receive injury and hurt. 
Second, depression is not a sin. Though sins can result from it and temptations intensify because of it, we may get depressed in spirit, he says. We may be nervous, fearful, timid. We may almost come to the borders of despair. And this, he says, quote, apart from sin. Third, depression is not unique to us. After Spurgeon will cite historical examples, Martin Luther, Isaac Newton, William Cooper. Then he'll give biblical examples, Job, King David, Elijah, the Lord Jesus, who Charles Spurgeon says experienced mental depression. And we'll come back to that. He will say this, and let's take it to heart. Quote, you're not the first child of God who's been depressed or troubled. Among the noblest of men and women who ever lived, there has been such of this kind thing. Do not therefore think that you are alone in your sorrow. Even though you may go to bed in the dark, you will wake up in the eternal daylight. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would take these loaves and fishes and multiply them. In your name we pray, amen. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.